Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. Mark 8, verses 1 through 21. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place. And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them and they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? This is the God's word. My name is Aaron Nelson. I'm the Salt Company Director here at Hill City, which is our college ministry. I want to start with a thank you. So in February, back actually back in January, we came and asked Hill City if you guys could help us get our college students to Salt Company Conference up in Des Moines, Iowa. And guys, in like less than three or four weeks, you guys helped us raise 11, over, almost $11,000. We were able to send 90 plus students on scholarships because of your guys' generosity. So thank you so much. It's incredible. It's awesome. Uh, my dad texted me this morning. He knew I was preaching and he just texted me and said, uh, make Jesus famous today. So we're going to pray that that happens. Lord, thank you. Thank you for being the God who weeps, the God who bleeds. I pray as we get the chance to enter into your word and learn from you and understand you today that your spirit falls on us, that um, we listen to where you're leading us. Lord, if it's conviction, let it convict. Lord, if it's freedom, let it be freedom. But I just pray that we are able to um, know you, love you, and follow you. 
It's in your name I pray. Amen. So I don't know if this, anybody, this has happened to anybody else, but I recently found out something about myself that was weird and for a really long time was not willing to accept. So when I was about 10, my grandma made me a cotton comforter. Um, you know the kinds that are like have all kinds of cotton that are puffed up in them. She put it together for me, gave it to me when I was like 10-ish. I've had that thing forever. So long. Uh, actually so long that I used it all growing up and then went to college. I took it with me. Um, and I was a broke college student. I was using flags to decorate my dorm room. You got to give me a break on a nasty looking blanket. So I love this and I don't think anything of it until I get married. And I get married, you know, my wife... My beautiful, wonderful wife who has an eye for aesthetic, she buys this beautiful duvet, right, for our bed. And I can deal with that thing for about a month before I tell her, like, listen, I'm tired of sleeping in my own filth because um, I'm sweating so much. At this point, this, this comforter I had had been matted down. You know how that cotton gets matted down real nice? So it breathes great. So I love this thing. And so what do I do a month in? I pull out my old reliable blanket. And I get under it, and we start sleeping under two different blankets. I'm like, I still love you, but I'm not going to sleep under the same blanket as you anymore because I sweat too much. At first, she makes a little bit fun of me. And as time goes on, she starts, like, letting my friends into this. And I'm like, that's disrespectful. <laughs> that's disrespectful. And my friends are also telling me it's weird now. I'm like, guys, and, and my wife at the same time is like, you have an emotional attachment to this blanket. I'm like, I do not have an emotional attachment to this blanket. It just breathes well. It doesn't make me sweat. I love it. She's like, you have an emotional attachment. This past Thursday, I get home after midweek, and I'm laying under my blankets, and she comes in with a weighted cooling blanket for me. She's like, we're moving to this. I'm like, okay, pull it out. I put it on. I'm like, nah, this isn't it. I get my old blanket, I get rid of that one. So why do I tell you this? Well, one, I'm here to confess in front of my wife, in front of my friends, in front of my church family, I think I have a blankie. <laughs> I, I really genuinely think I might have a blankie. Uh, I didn't tell her this, but when I put it on on Thursday, I was like, ain't no shot, there's no way. But for the longest time, I couldn't accept that that was a reality. I tell you this, though, because we see something similar happen in Mark 8. It's not with an individual who can't accept in reality, though. It's a group of people who just can't accept the reality about something, which, listen, we can relate to not accepting realities. Right? I know for a fact there's people in this room who believe the moon landing was fake. Know for a fact. They're like, look at the pictures. The shadows are off. I'm like, you're crazy. Moon landing is not fake. I know people in this room. I remember the first time I met someone who thought the earth was flat. His name was Fran. I thought Fran was crazy. My favorite one, this is the best, that birds aren't real. They're government spies among us. That's crazy. So realities that people just can't accept. We also do this with like spiritual things too, like things in the faith. With like historical truths we struggle with. We're walking through Jonah right now in Salt Company and it's hard for some people to accept like did Jonah really get swallowed by a fish? Other ones, like, did Jesus really raise from the grave? Those are like historical truths that are hard to accept, but there's also some spiritual truths that are really hard to accept. Like, can God really forgive me? Is God really good? 
Does my holiness really matter? And listen, these are really, really good questions. And questions that we in the church have to be willing to talk about. We don't run away from hard questions. We need to be able to talk about them. But here's our challenge is can we accept the answer that these questions lead to? Because not everybody can. All right, so let's look back before we hop into Mark 8 today. All right, let's see where we've been over the last couple weeks. Remember, we're going through this series, The Path of Our King, and we see Jesus is heading somewhere intentionally, and he's heading there immediately. So a couple chapters ago in chapter 6, we see Jesus send the disciples out to go proclaim mainly one thing. The king is here. The kingdom is at hand. The king is here. And at the end of chapter 6, we see the disciples return back to Jesus. And then Jesus starts going places with them. And as he's doing this, he not only has re- he's not, doesn't have revealed himself through what he says, but he starts to reveal himself through some of the things he's doing. Some of the miraculous things he's performing. I don't know if you felt this when Morgan was reading chapter 8, 1 through 10, but maybe you felt some deja vu, right? Because just a couple of weeks ago, Royce talked about Jesus feeding the 5,000. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about verses 1 through 10 today, but I wanted to make sure we read it and make sure we talked about it because here's what I want us to remember. Jesus did it again. He did it again. This is the second time he's come across a group of people who needed to eat. And the second time, he had compassion on them. And the second time, the disciples are like, what are we going to do? What do we do? I'm confused. The disciples still aren't getting it yet. Right? Like Roy said, Jesus saw people for people. The disciples see people for a problem. And for the second time, Jesus provides. But not in a normal way. He takes about the same amount of food that would take like these first two rows of people to feed them, but he feeds 4,000 plus. He's done it again. By some divine, miraculous power, he's done it again. So, what I'm about to say is something I've been waiting to say for like the last month and a half, two months since I knew I was preaching today. You know what we're going to do with this story? We're going to take it. Where are we going to put it, Hill City? Right in that back pocket. All right, we're going to hold on to that. We're going to come back to it, but we're going to keep it in that back pocket. So after he's fed the 4,000, he immediately hops on a boat and is headed towards the next city. He performed this feeding of the 4,000 in a Gentile territory, and now he is heading back to a Jewish territory. In verses 11 through 13. So he's back in this Jewish territory, and we know what that means. Pharisees, which if I remember correctly, are the people Brad compared to hemorrhoids last week, right? Kind of, they're the ones who are always there, but don't always, you don't always see them or hear them, but when they're there, and you can, they're intense, right? So these Pharisees, these are the guys we're dealing with again, but this time it's not just them. We look at Matthew's account of this in Matthew 16, we see this time The Sadducees have come with the Pharisees, another religious elite group. Which, listen, given the time and place, this is crazy. Right? The Pharisees and Sadducees, they're not friends. They actually really don't like each other. They have a bunch of religious disagreements. And they really are like 
enemies with one another. But oftentimes, a couple of enemies who have a common bigger enemy become allies. And this shouldn't surprise us. Like Jesus in the kingdom of heaven always has opposition. And so these two enemies become allies. Listen, I'm a massive Chiefs fan. Big Chiefs fan, right? I want the Broncos to lose constantly. Like as often as they can lose, I'm like, let's go. But there's two times a year for three and a half hours where I'm a massive Broncos fan. It's when they're playing the Raiders, right? When they're playing the Raiders, I'm gonna be like, cheering on Broncos all of a sudden. I love John Elway. It's crazy how the shift happens. But I become a massive Broncos fan. That's what happens here with the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're like, you don't like him? We don't like him. I don't like you, but I dislike him more than I dislike you. And so they're like, okay, let's go. So they concoct up this plan. And so Jesus arrives in this territory, and they come and they just start arguing with Jesus. They demand a sign. And when I say sign, Don't think like miracle, right? Miracle, the Greek word for it is dunamis. Dunamis, which means something done by supernatural power. Dunamis. No, the Pharisees and Sadducees thought demons could do dunamis. They thought demons were able to do miraculous signs on earth, like physical miracles in earth, which actually gives us some clarity to Mark 3.22. These are these same guys, these scribes, describe them as the scribes, The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, this is talking about Jesus, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. They're like, listen, Jesus, your miracles, this feeding of like the 4,000, 5,000, it's too small time. Like those are small time miracles. Actually, we think you're just pulling your power from the demonics, from the demonic forces. They don't want a dunamis. They don't want something done by supernatural power. No, they want a sign. Or the Greek word for sign is semion. Semion. And this is something done by divine authority. Like something only God can do. They want an OT type of sign, an Old Testament type of sign. Like they're like, step up from the little leagues, let's go big leagues. Like rain down fire, like give us an Elijah type of miracle here. We want something big. Pretty much what they're saying is prove yourself. Prove yourself. You say you're the son of God. Do something that only the son of God could do. They just can't accept who he is. The reality is right in front of them, and yet they're unwilling to accept it. And here's Jesus' response. A sigh of sorrow and disappointment. Jesus pretty much says, what else do you need? In Matthew's account of this, once again back in chapter 16, he, he, he talks about like pretty much, if you see clear skies, it probably means you're going to have good weather. If you see big storm clouds, it probably means it's going to rain. But when you see me, you don't understand who I am. When you see what I've done, you don't understand what it means. He's questioning their intellectual integrity right here. I love it. Pretty much what he's saying, listen, if it looks like a duck, if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, 
it's probably a duck, right? That's what Jesus is saying here. He's questioning, the, questioning their intellectual integrity. This is another one of these jabs from Jesus. That's not what they're going to get. So he tells them, that's not what you guys are going to get. He's not going to prove himself to those who are bent on disbelief. Like they're set in their ways. They're like, we're not going to believe. This isn't a genuine request for them. It's a question actually out of, out of hard-heartedness. We go back. We look in, we look in a John's gospel. This is after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Right, which is like a divine sign. Like, that's something only God could really do. We look in John 11, 47 through 48, after Jesus has raised Lazarus, he said, says, so the chief priests and the Pharisees, these are the same guys, gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They didn't care about a sign. They didn't want to believe. They actually wanted to maintain their power. That's what they cared about. They wanted to maintain their political position in their current situation. That's what they are after. They were bent on disbelief. Listen, I've got to hear plenty of stories of people who like the intellectual aspect of following Jesus is really hard for them to compute. Because we don't have like a 100% airtight case, right? We can't look. There's like, I need more science to prove this Jesus thing. Hear me. There's a lot of things that point to the reality of Jesus. But we don't have 100%, here's your scientific, like perfect reasoning for there being Jesus. Because Jesus and God are way bigger than science. They go way beyond science. There's others who there's like a relational aspect to following Jesus that makes it really difficult to follow him. Maybe because of, of hurt relationships with people within the church or a church that uh, didn't shepherd well or whatever it is, but there's like their own reality, their own stories, I'll put them in a place where they're bent on disbelief. There's nothing you could ever say that would change my mind. Christians are just hypocrites. And it's like this heart posture of like, no matter what happens, no matter what God could do, nothing can change my mind. I know the reality. And listen, Jesus isn't just going to perform for anyone who's bent on disbelief. He's not going to do a backflip for you. As Brad said, Jesus wants your heart. He wants our hearts. He's chasing after our hearts. He doesn't want to just change your mind. He doesn't want to intellectually just prove to you how he exists. He wants our hearts. And he's not going to perform. Just like he's not going to perform for the Jewish religious leaders here. So once again, after he finishes this interaction with these guys, he hops back on a boat to head away. He's back on the boat with the disciples. And once they get to where they're going, Jesus gives them a warning. We look at verse 15. This is Jesus speaking. He says, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, my mom's side of the family is from Oklahoma. Also, just to clarify, I believe Oklahoma is part of the South. All right? 
if you didn't know, in the South, they like to bake a lot, right? And they throw, they will put anything in a pie. It's crazy. Like cherries, pie, apple pie, pecans, pie. They put rhubarb, which is a vegetable, in pie. It doesn't, it's crazy. They just put anything in pie. But they love to bake. And I, I remember watching my grandma growing up make homemade bread. And it was delicious. It was wonderful. She'd get all her ingredients and her KitchenAid that would need the dough for her, right? She'd put it all, get it all in there, and then she'd just throw some yeast in it. And it was cool because once she was done, she, you know, she'd cover the top. She'd let it sit for like an hour to two hours. And then that hour to two hours, it went from like this small piece of dough on the bottom of the bowl. And then that hour or two, it would all of a sudden almost be like overflowing out of the bowl. Yeast is a type of leaven. And so I tell you that story. I I talk about my grandma's bread to help us understand Jesus' metaphor here when he talks about leaven. You see, this metaphor is actually a commonly used concept for them. And they talk about uh, leaven as something that's like small or even sometimes invisible, but it's very pervasive. So really, like this, this small bit of something that spreads and has a big effect, that's what leaven does. And oftentimes when they would talk about this, they would talk about it through the lens of, that, of something that's corrupt. So what Jesus is saying here is beware of the small pervasive, corrupt, here's the thing we got it, the teachings. The small, pervasive, corrupt teachings of the Pharisees and Herod. Listen, as we just saw with the Pharisees, they're telling people, they're explaining away the, the miracles that Jesus is doing by saying he gets his power from the demonic. Herod, on the other hand, he's telling people like we saw back in chapter 6, he's telling people, Jesus is just John the Baptist resurrected. That's who he is. And so those are two very different teachings, but they have one very common thing between them. They're making the same statement with those two things. Jesus is not the Messiah. Jesus is not the Son of God. Make no mistake, the power that he has, the miracles that he's performing are not from divine authority. He is not the Messiah. Now for a moment, let's just step into 2023, right? Because this warning from Jesus is just as relevant to us as it is to the disciples here. Now, Now today, these pervasive corrupt teachings look very different but they're no less dangerous. And there's plenty different versions of them out there. Pervasive teachings like Jesus is a bigot. Jesus isn't bothered by sin. He's okay with your sin. You don't need to fix anything. Just be who you are. Jesus is a good moral teacher. Right, like hey, that Sermon on the Mountain, that was good stuff. Those were good teachings, but that's all he is, just a good teacher. Jesus is just a good social justice warrior. Where Jesus wants me to just be my true self. Follow my heart, follow my desires. Do whatever feels good. Jesus wants me to be happy. Right? We, we, heard this, we heard Brad talk about the silly boys last week. And, and it can be easy to think when, when we say Jesus wants me to be happy, we're just talking about like, people who just think God wants us to have health and wealth. 
But I also think it can very quickly apply to a lukewarm faith. Right? Jesus wants me to be happy. And so therefore, when the cost of following Jesus is too high, I'll, I'll just take a step back for a second. Because Jesus wants, he wouldn't make me do something I don't want to do. He wants me to be happy. Jesus wants me to be happy, so when he calls me to go somewhere, when he calls me to be obedient, when I feel like I should be doing something, it's hard, but Jesus wants me to be happy, so actually, I'm just going to continue doing it how I'm doing it. Like, these pervasive teachings show themselves in different ways, but they're not all that different from what the Pharisees and Herod's teachings were pointing to. That fact that Jesus isn't the Messiah. How is it communicating the same thing as then? Because any of these teachings, they, do, they typically do one of two, two things. They either add something to who Jesus is or they dilute who Jesus is. Therefore, the idea of Jesus we create ceases to be the Jesus, the Messiah of the Bible. I'll say it another way. Therefore, the concept of Jesus we want is no longer the, the Jesus he presents himself to be. And it's a danger for the disciples, and it's a danger that us in the church need to be aware of. So Jesus gives the disciples this really serious warning. Man, sometimes I love the disciples. I think they're so funny. Jesus is like, listen, the Pharisees, they're saying I get my power from the demonic, and Herod's saying I'm just John the Baptist, come back to life. Like this is serious warning of beware, and they're like, Dude, we forgot our bread back on the other side. Like, it's back over there. Like, they hear leaven, and it's just like they quit listening. Where's our bread? Jesus doesn't find this funny, as we see from his response. He says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? The disciples are stuck on the physical provisions in life. And Jesus here, he rebukes them. He corrects them because he loves them enough to correct them. But he rebukes them because they still don't get it. At this point, they've seen 16 miraculous acts by Jesus. Right, let's go to that back pocket. In the last two chapters, in the last 10 verses even, they've seen Jesus feed 9,000 plus people. And yet they're on this boat, they don't have bread, and they're like, what are we going to do for bread? And Jesus, he's given them a spiritual warning here, but all they can think about is the physical. What's tangible? 
When Jesus acts, this is what they're, they're failing to understand. When Jesus acts, when he speaks, he is always acting on more than just a physical level. Right, we've talked about this a few times throughout Mark. Jesus deals with the heart. He deals with the spirit. But because the disciples have yet to realize the magnitude of who Jesus is, they can't look at what he's done with a proper view. Or they can't even listen to what he has to say with a complete understanding. They understood it was a miracle, but missed the significance of the miracles. They saw he fed 9,000 plus people, but they missed the significance of what it meant that he fed 9,000 people. So what's the significance? Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. Like all of these different miraculous things are happening, they're all pointing to one thing. Jesus is the Son of God. But without a big picture understanding of who Jesus is, the disciples here struggle to grasp that. Do we understand who Jesus is? If he looks like the Son of God, if he walks like the Son of God, if he talks like the Son of God, if he cleanses the leopard like the Son of God, if he calms storms, feeds the thousands, casts out demons like the Son of God, if he raises the dead to life like the Son of God, if he dies for sins, raises from the grave, and removes the sting of death like the Son of God, then he is the Son of God. That's the Messiah we're talking about here, and the disciples can't see that. But Hill City, can we see that? This is the Son of God we're talking about. Can we see what he's done that gives light to what he's doing? Or does the physical cloud our ability to understand the spiritual? Does money, success, influence, fear of future, loneliness, and relationship cloud our ability to understand Jesus wants our hearts? The call here is to understand Jesus so that we can follow Jesus. Understand Jesus so that we can follow Jesus. You see, we look at the Pharisees. They were way too worried about their physical positioning in life. They had too much to lose in the physical. They had time, money, reputation, energy, self-indulgence, like a lot of things to lose to want to even believe in Jesus. For them, they're like, the cost is just too high. The cost of what I can lose here today is just way too high. But listen to me. The cost of not following Jesus is so much higher. So much more. There's too much to lose in the spiritual compared to what you could lose in the physical. Time, money, reputation, energy, self-indulgence, all of it, it doesn't mount to the cost of not following Jesus in light of eternity. And the difference, though, for the Pharisees is the difference between a refusal to see and the inability to see like the disciples. 
Like, listen, you, you hear me talk about the Pharisees. It's like, that's not me. I want to follow Jesus. I believe Jesus is the Messiah. That's who many of us are in here, are people who are like, I want to follow Jesus. I want to chase after him. That's not me. I'm not the Pharisee. Listen, first of all, the disciples are getting there. They're working their way through. All right, let's give them some grace. They're working towards it. But in this moment, the disciples were way too short-sighted. Like they wanted to follow Jesus, but they didn't have a big enough of a picture to understand the implications of Jesus' presence with them. And that's the fact that everything is spiritual. That's the fact that everything in life is lordship to Jesus. There's nothing that we keep away from him. Everything we're talking about, everything we do is spiritual. One of my favorite quotes, it's changed my walk with Jesus, it's changed how I view life and how I view the world. It's from C.S. Lewis. He says, there's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Listen, the way you went and behaved as you went through the McDonald's drive-thru on your way here today, it wasn't neutral. The way your coworkers view you isn't neutral. The way you walk past people on the way out of here who don't know anybody, it's not neutral. For me, this is one, it's like Jesus, work on my heart. The way I play pickup basketball isn't neutral. Right, the way I engage with people, it's not neutral. The way you treat your friends, your kids, your wife, it's not neutral and it's not just physical. Jesus engages in the spiritual, he engages at the heart level, he engages with our spirits. But when we lack a big picture understanding of who Jesus is, it's hard to remember the fact that nothing is neutral. But when we do remember, when we're able to gain this big picture understanding of Jesus, which allows us to follow Jesus properly, and we get, we get hit with questions like, can God really forgive me? We know the answer is yes. But when we're short-sighted, that's hard to see the answer. Because all I can see is what's happening around my shame is right here. Jesus doesn't feel right here right now. Like all I can see is what's right in front of me. But Jesus exists in the big picture. He exists in the spiritual. And we can say yes. We can know that he is the son of God. And he said when he went to that cross, he took our sins with him. Our understanding of Jesus gets, gives light to how we follow Jesus. Out of high school, I, uh, I went to a Christian college and I met some really great people while I was at college. Um, some people that seemed to be like passionately following Jesus. And now I'm five years removed from that and I don't know any other way to describe it besides just tra tragic. But more than I honestly want to count have walked away from their faith. And it's a tragedy and it's really at this point in time, it's a story way more common than I think we realize. We realize. 
And I was talking with a friend about this recently. And one of the things, as I was thinking about a common theme that I can look back on for many of them was there was always, there always seemed, even at this time, to be like a physical barrier between them and really understanding who Jesus was. Whether it was, was politics or a personal agenda or uh, maybe their own church story, maybe the people they interacted with, but there was always like this physical barrier, it seemed, like you could feel it when you talked to them about Jesus. And for them, that physical barrier kept them from really understanding the magnitude of who Jesus was. And it's, and it's a hard, hard reality to come to grips with. But Hill City, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. And that doesn't just affect Physical things, no, more than anything, it affects the spiritual aspect of our lives. Everything we do, there is no neutral ground. How you leave this place today, how you listen and engage in worship, there is no neutral ground. Jesus engages with the heart. He engages with the spirit. As you walk out today, you're going to stay on the back wall of Hill City's mission statement. And I want you to pay attention to the First four words. Together, we love God. If this church ever ceases to do that, run as far away from here as you can. Together, we love God. And that's what we want to do. We want to love God. Which means we need to understand the magnitude of him sending Jesus. We need to understand the effects of him sending Jesus. Our lives are changed, and not just the parts we want to change. Every aspect of our lives are changed by the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Can we understand that? Can we live our lives in light of that? Let me pray. Jesus, Son of God, thank you. Thank you for allowing us to know who you are. Thank you for enabling us to grow in understanding so we can more closely follow you. I pray as we head into our weeks that we're able to remember that the way we live our lives in front of people, the way we live our lives behind closed doors matters. It's not neutral. Lord, will you make us a church, make us a people here and around the world where people can look at them and see that, that we don't just value what's right in front of us. We don't just value the physical. No, ultimately we value what you value. And even when the cost is high, the cost to not follow you is so much higher. It's in your name I pray. Amen. If you're serving communion, you go ahead and start to get in place. To set up communion today, I want to read... 1 Corinthians 1.22 says, For Jews demand signs. That's what we've been talking about. Jews demand a sign from Jesus. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Here we go. But we preach Christ crucified. 
a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Listen, we're getting ready to come to the table to take part in communion. And as we do this, that's exactly what we're doing. It's Christ crucified being preached. When you go, you're gonna t- they're gonna see a, a piece of bread torn off for you. That's symbolic of the body of broken, body of Jesus broken for you. And then it's gonna be, after it's torn, it's gonna be dipped in some juice and we're gonna watch this juice run down from this piece of bread and that's Christ crucified being preached to you because of his blood shed for you. And as we do this, as we take this reminder every week, it's to help us do exactly what we talked about today, to understand who Jesus really was. That he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God. And we're gonna humbly ask and remind us that this is a meal for those who are following Jesus. And if it's something you'd love to hear more about, there's gonna be people around the room who would love to talk with you about that or pray with you about it. So as we stand, we're gonna take communion. And like usual, there's gonna be a map on the screen behind me to show us how we're gonna do it. All right. These two aisles are gonna come to this aisle. These two sections are gonna come to this aisle. Right here, you guys will exit down the middle. Out here, you'll exit around. But Hill City, during this time, can we be remembered, reminded of who Jesus was and what he's done?